Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Let's open up in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning. Jesus, I pray, God, that your spirit would be in this place just guiding and, and moving us, Father. I pray, Jesus, that you would take me, God, as a, as a vessel, Jesus, just a broken vessel, Father. I just want to go where you lead. Father, I pray, God, that anything, um, God, anything other than your voice, God, would be silenced in this place. Lord, we love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, it's been a while since I've been up here, so I'm nervous all over again. It's kind of like restarting, but that's okay. So, just to break the ice, I want everybody to give a high five to the person right next to you. All right? Very good. Okay, now I want you to high five the other person that you just ignored and hurt their feelings. That was so rude. Can't believe you guys. It's supposed to be a place of love. You can't just high five your favorites. Come on. All right. All right, cool. Now that you guys have introduced yourselves to your husband and wife next to you, what I want you to do is tell the person, actually, I want, to tell you, I want you to tell five people around you, say, how low can you go? Ask them, how low can you go? How low can you go? Don't answer the question. I just told you, I just said ask. Man. Favoritism and rebellion. Gosh. All right, well, let's get started with this morning's message. Um, We're in the book of Luke. This morning, I'm going to be covering a large section of Luke. We're just going to basically be paraphrasing some things. There's something that the Lord's put on my heart that I really believe firmly that I want to share with us, Uh, something that he's really been working in me for the past, I'd say, year. It's awesome, um, awesome revelation for myself, and I hope this morning that our spirits would be open to whatever it is that God wants to speak. Maybe it'll be what I'm talking about. Maybe it'll be something in the subtext. And so I just invite us that just as Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I just invite us in this place to be listening. Again, listening not to just to my voice, but listening to the spirit as we speak and as we, uh, as we go through the text. Amen? Amen. All right, well, Paul talks to us about the renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind. He says, uh, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's something called worldview. Everybody say worldview. Now, a worldview, what it is, is it's basically a perspective. It's a lens that shapes the way we see everything around us. As some of us, we were raised in maybe an abusive home. And so that has shaped the way that we perceive the world around us. Some of us, maybe, maybe, I know, especially in this culture, uh, maybe you went to, to a, a very, very strict uh, religious school that kind of beat these things into you, these principles. And for some, that was okay, and disciplines became a part of our lives. And then for others, it did nothing more than push you away from the idea of God. It's a worldview. It's a, it's a lens. It's an ungodly lens that shifts the way you see everything. Today, I want to talk about humility and pride. Humility and pride. Worldviews. The worldview of broken humanity is that of selfish ambition. It basically says, do whatever it takes, step on whoever you need to, in order to get to where you want to go. It's all about me. Selfish ambition. I'm going to elevate myself, and regardless of what that means for people around me. Selfish ambition. Madonna was quoted as saying, I have an iron will, And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. 
And then I get to another stage and think that I'm mediocre and interesting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna. This is a woman that is achieved by the world's standards, everything that you could really achieve in the line of work that she's in. Money, I mean, everything, everything that, we, that our flesh craves after, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, she's had it all. And there's still this sense of wanting, there's still this sense of, I'm still not there, I'm still missing it. C.S. Lewis, not in response to this because he's super old, but he said before this, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for another world. And I think that's something, this, this is the, just to, in, to, into this intro of this sermon, that's something we need to begin to, to ponder in our hearts. What have we tried to satisfy? And I don't want to tell you what to think, but I know that in my life, if I was real with myself, I could honestly say it didn't do it. It didn't measure up. It didn't give me what I was looking for. So even when it came to selfish ambition, even when it came to being the best at something, even when it came to, to putting other people down for the sake of my own inflation, it didn't satisfy. It didn't give me what I needed. C.S. Lewis is an incredible man. God's worldview is the exact opposite of selfish ambition. It's humility. Everybody say humility. And again, I want you to look at the person next to you and ask them, how low can you go? How low can you go? Humility. Matthew 20, 16 says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is God's worldview. So backwards from us. Luke 18, 14, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's an excerpt from a scripture we're going to be studying this morning together. Philippians 2, 3. I love this verse. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. That's huge. There's so much, even in that. We don't even have to like do anything else. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. You guys can go home. Okay? That's a good verse. The saddest part is this. We have this human, this broken human worldview, and then we have God's worldview. The difficulty is when the broken worldview gets its way into the church, and the church's worldview is no longer in alignment with God's. But rather, it's very corrupt, very worldly. And so church can even become a place where it's about selfish ambition. I'm going to get that position. I'm going to run that ministry. I'm going to do this better than that person ever could. Selfish ambition. It's a broken worldview. So before we get into, that's the intro, before we get into the sermon, I want to give you guys some background, some background information historically, uh, contextually, so that we can all kind of be in the same place, frame of mind of, of where we're going to be going and the scriptures we're going to be reading. So we have Jesus. Everybody raise your hand if you know, ever, you've ever heard about Jesus? He's a good dude. If you don't know him, I can introduce you to him. He's a good guy. So these are the last moments of Jesus' journey before he begins his final descent into Jerusalem. 
So we're about to enter into the phase, into the, to the time of his ministry where he enters Jerusalem for the last time to be crucified. That's where we're at in, in, uh, in Jesus' story. And in chapter 17, he's just told the religious leaders that the kingdom of God was in their midst. He just told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what he's saying when he says that is he's saying it is so close to you, but you're still just bumping into it. It's in your midst. It's around you. It's, it's, all, it's all over the place, but you, you're just not there. You're just not getting it yet. Why? Selfish ambition was a major issue with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The kingdom of God. Everybody say the kingdom of God. Okay. The kingdom of God, essentially, if you just break down the word, it's where the king has dominion. Okay. So if God is king, it means that where the kingdom of God is where God has entire full dominion. That means everything is subject to him. Everything is obedient to him. That also means all that he is, peace, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, gentleness, all these different characteristics, attributes of God. The kingdom of God is what brings those in. The church was never supposed to focus on the church. The church was supposed to focus on the kingdom. A bringing of the kingdom, not an expansion of a church. It was the expansion of a kingdom. And with that kingdom, we bring peace, joy, love, forgiveness, grace, mercy to people's lives. All these things that we're so hungry for. But the church gets so busy, and I'm not speaking just about our church. I'm saying as a whole, the church in general gets so busy in self ambition, selfish ambition, trying to expand its own self more so than the kingdom. It's my prayer that that's not us. I don't believe that to be us, and that I pray that we would move towards this kingdom of God expansion. Jesus tells, um, he tells his audience, another point in the gospels, he says that the gateway to the kingdom of heaven is not wide. He says it's narrow. It's narrow, okay? That's a word I want you guys to keep in your hearts as we continue on in this sermon. And again, this is just intro information, so just don't fall asleep. Okay, calm down. It's going to get exciting, I promise. Then everybody say Sadducees. Sadducees. There's that corny pastor joke where they say they're the Sadducees because they're just sad, really miserable people. I was going to tell it, but I didn't, and then I told it anyway, so now I'm embarrassed. The Sadducees, they ran the religious system of the day. There was the Sadducees, there was the Pharisees, there was a couple of other groups in Jesus' day. Um, History tells us that the Sadducees ran the religious system of the day. This means they were the priests in the temple. They were the most wealthy uh, group of Jewish people that that were alive in their day. They were also the smallest group of people. So it's the smallest percentage, but they have all the money. Sounds a little like, what? It doesn't sound like the USA at all. The Sadducees, they're the priests in the temple. Um, They enjoyed Roman Hellenistic culture, according to historians. So they were religious, they they served God, they ran the temple, but they loved Roman culture, the Hellenistic view. So they attended the arena, they watched the games, they went to the theaters. The book of Maccabees is actually recorded as saying that at one point, people weren't even able to go worship because all the priests were at the game. So these are people that are super religious when it comes to their activities for the most part. But other than that, they act like everybody else in the Roman culture that conquered their their culture. And it's very helpful to understand that that's where the Sadducees are coming from because it it, it seems to, to me that that sounds a lot like the issue with 
church is we're very good at what we do when we come to do what we do. But outside, we don't look much different. We don't look much different than the culture around us. So again, what I'm addressing, what I'm trying to deal with here at the beginning of setting this up is worldview. We can't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Our worldview cannot be shaped by them. Their worldview is supposed to be infected by heaven, if you will. A takeover of the kingdom. So they worked closely with the Roman Empire, these Sadducees. They governed the the Jewish people from Rome via the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 60-some men, 60-some religious leaders. About 61 of those 60-some, I think 65 or 66 total, about 61 of them are are Sadducees at at this time in, in history. So we have Jesus, we have the kingdom, we have the Sadducees, and then we have the unclean. Everybody say the unclean. Okay, touch the person next to you, ask them, are you clean? Don't read into it. You're just asking them if they took a shower. It's okay. The unclean in Jesus' day, in this historical context, would have been the lepers, tax collectors, Gentiles, etc. Now, I have a picture. Uh, Jacob, if you go to that map, or I'm sorry, the outline of the temple. So this is, a, this is an image of Herod's temple. This is the temple that was up in Jesus' day. It was glamorous. If you compared this to Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple was like, man, I don't know, like less than a quarter that size. So when Herod builds his temple, it's massive. What I want you to pay attention to is that the far inside of the temple, you have something that's called the priest's courtyard. It's the inner courtyard of the temple. This is where the Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, this is where they would be allowed to worship. This is the, the, the part that they were able to get to. Then I want you to look all the way to the end of the wall and then look at where it says Gentiles court. If you are not a Jew or if you are a leper, somebody of like sickness, even blind people a lot of times weren't allowed into the deeper parts. Or if you are a Jew but you are a tax collector, the deepest, the furthest you could go into the temple was the Gentile courtyard. This is over two football fields away from the actual temple itself. Over 200 yards away. So the Gentiles would have to worship all the way out there. All the way out. That's like you guys having to run over to Walmart and then pretend like you're a part of what we're doing here. You know, so that's what's going on in this day and age. So that's our historical background. We got Jesus, we have uh, the kingdom of God, the Sadducees, and we have the unclean. So, this morning, if you would turn to Luke chapter 18, and you could just, I mean, you could just open your Bible there. Um, I'm going to paraphrase most of these stories for for time's sake, because there's a lot that I want to draw out of it. So, first we have this this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I've shared it a little bit before uh, one of the Sundays that I shared it. Ron covered it a little bit last week, but I just want to revisit this idea. So, what you have here is Jesus draws this this example, this, this um, yeah, just this example for the people. And he starts talking about a Pharisee. He says that there was a Pharisee one day, and he goes in to pray. Now remember where he's praying. He's praying at the innermost temple, the innermost part of the courtyard. That's where this Pharisee is. And he starts, he starts boasting in himself and calling it prayer. He says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like these sinners. I'm not an extortionist. I'm not a robber. I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not, hey, you know what? That guy back there, I'm not like him. 
I'm not like that tax collector. God, I've kept all your laws. I tithe. I do all these things. And he boasts in himself selfish ambition. And then Jesus draws this drastic contrast, comparison that he often does. He says, and then there was a tax collector, that tax collector way, way back there. He said the tax collector was so low, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He said, one of the translations says he wouldn't even dare look to heaven. And he's pounding his chest. And in Jewish culture, to pound your chest is like the, one of the deepest senses of grief, of remorse. And he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He doesn't say, man, I really want to be like that Pharisee. He deals with himself in humility. And in this lowness, God, Jesus says, I tell you, surely, it was this man that went with the favor of God. It was this man who had the forgiveness of God. Look at the person next to you. Ask him, how low can you go? Nobody bring out a limbo stick, though. That would be awkward. Selfish ambition. Our first point for today is that self-inflation brings humiliation. Self-inflation brings humiliation. And we're going to see this in the text. We read it a, a, a couple verses back where Jesus says that he who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Selfish inflation brings humiliation. I was in high school not very long ago. Um, it's crazy to think about. I was stupid. Man, sorry. Moment of memoir, I suppose. I was in my guitar class. There's a girl I really liked. I, mean, I really liked this girl. I really wanted to impress her. And so we were doing push-up contests. We were doing all kinds of stupid stuff as guys, you know. And, I mean, we were just trying to be all big and act like we were cool guys. And, I mean, we're guitarists, so... Not very many push-ups were done in that room, okay? But we, we tried to outdo each other. It was good. It was good competition. And then we decided that, okay, now we're, gonna, now we're just going to do sit-ups. And we're all showing off and stuff. And at one point, this girl asks if she can just step on our stomachs while we're doing this. I was like, yeah, of course. I can, we can handle that, you know? And at this point, it's kind of just me. And so I'm doing these sit-ups. I'm laying down. I'm like, okay, now you, now you can step on my stomach, and I'll just see how long I can hold you. And so I began to flex my stomach as hard as I could. And something really humiliating happened. <laughs> we're not going to say it, though, because this is church. We don't talk about farts in church. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, like God wasn't gracious in this moment. It wasn't like this like little whistle even. It was like the Kraken had been released in that room, okay? It was out of control. And I just turned red and I didn't know, I, what do you do? You can't, you run away, it's more embarrassing. So what did I do? I was like, why did you do that? I blamed it on her. I learned it from Adam, it's a good, good technique. So I asked, why did you do that? We never talked again. She got really, she got offended. I got everybody to believe it was her. So that was good. <laughs> pride comes before a fall or a fart in this matter. But, you know, pride, self-inflation 
leads to humiliation. And that's the situation with this Pharisee. God's saying you can puff yourself up and you can build yourself up and you can put yourself in in these exalted places. You can be in the inner court. But at the end of the day, you don't have anything. Madonna, remember her? I've achieved all these things. But I still battle this sense of inadequacy. Self-inflation leads to humiliation. Then we're going to move on. We're going to read this section of scripture. I actually don't have it on the PowerPoint. Um, I decided this morning I'd read it because it's short. This is Luke 18, 15, Jesus blessing the children. It says, one day some parents brought their little children. Another translation says infants. These are babies. Um, brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God, you guys remember the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. You see, the disciples even felt too important. They felt like Jesus was too busy. He had too many things to be done for, for people to be bothering him with, his, with their babies. But Jesus' heart, and, and you need to see the way that these, these verses, and it'll make so much sense at the end, how they're all going to be stringed together. So we start out with this tax collector, lowly, lowly in the position of his stature, lowly in the position of his heart, humble, poor of spirit. You see infants, these babies, babies aren't very dependent. As a matter of fact, they're entirely I mean, they're not very independent. Yeah, they're very entirely dependent. They're lowly in stature. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen like an elephant child born or anything. I haven't. So usually babies come out relatively small. Ask the person next to you, how low can you go? Lowly in stature and independence. We're going to move on. I'm just, just going to draw these little these points out of these. String it all together at the end. Here we have a rich man. We're going to paraphrase this section. This is Luke Uh, This is still in Luke 18, verse 18. This is another religious leader. He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus does this little slap. He says, like, what are you calling me good? Only God is good. So he's just saying, he says, you just called me God. You know what you just did, religious leader? Heresy. That's what they try to use on Jesus all the time. Now he's just flipping that around on him. So why do you call me good? And he says, but to answer your question, you must follow the commandments. Then he lists, he lists uh, four commandments, I believe. He says, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, five of them, honor your father and your mother. And the man replies to him, he says, I've obeyed all these commandments. Everything you just listed, check, got it done. I've done all those, what else? And Jesus says something, he says, you're still missing one thing. You're still missing one thing. And then Jesus goes on to list two things, which is interesting to me. You're missing one thing. He says, sell all your goods and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. Two things. And so as I was studying, I was like, well, Jesus, you said one thing, and then you listed two. Come on, man. Where's the the consistency? And I continue to read the scripture, and then there comes this point where he says, well, the, 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 the religious leader says in scripture, he becomes sad. When Jesus tells him, sell all your goods and give it to the poor, he becomes sad. This man had a lot of money. He was very, very rich. He had achieved 
so much self-inflation, selfish ambition. And when Jesus says, drop it, let it go, follow me, the man becomes sad and he turns around and walks away. And Jesus is there in that moment, teaching moment for his disciples, and he says, surely I say to you, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. As I studied that, a camel to fit through the eye of a needle, that's an odd picture. That's one of the more extreme images that Jesus gives us. Can you imagine like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle? That's a really skinny camel at the end of all that process. Maybe if you ground him up or something, I don't know. Does anybody, has anybody eaten ground, ground camel before? No? Me neither. That's gross. If you have, if you raised your hand, we were about to mock you as a group. Okay? Glad you didn't. Then I started to stutter, study a historical context of this. The eye of a needle. There was a gate around Jerusalem. There was, there was, a, there was a wall all around Jerusalem. There's a gate called the needle gate. This gate was an after-hour gate. So after the guards, after the security guards, or the guards have gone back in and they, they seal up the walls for the evening, there's a single gate and it is tiny. It's this tiny little thing. And the only possible way somebody could get their camel through there was they had to strip everything off of him. Everything had to come off of the camel. He couldn't go in with any of his, any of his baggage. They had to strip all of that off of the camel, and then they would literally, he would have to crawl on his knees. The camel would have to crawl on his knees, and they would have to push him through on his knees. This is interesting to me. Kind of reminds me of when Paul says, let us strip off anything that would hinder us from running this race. And then he says, uh, Paul in Philippians talks about, do not exalt yourself but be humble, be humble. So we have a camel on his knees. We have tiny little baby children. Then we have a tax collector in a lowly position. Everybody ask somebody, how low can you go? Something that the Lord spoke to me the other night, it was in a dream. It was really scary, actually. I won't go into the dream because it was weird. But the phrase that I woke up with running through my mind that God spoke to me was when you act like you've arrived, you hold yourself back from your destiny. When you act like you've arrived, you hold yourself back from your destiny. One of the issues with human worldview is we don't like to acknowledge our weakness. We don't like to pay attention to the things that are still broken inside of us that still need healing. Rather, we puff ourselves up and we project out all of our strength. And we say, this is who I am. All that other stuff, that's, you know, as Christians, we pretty it up. We say, that's the old me. You know, and then later that evening, somebody makes you upset and then the old you all of a sudden comes out. And you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. That didn't mean anything. That was the old me. No, it's still something that God's working on is what it is. And until we're able to admit our weaknesses and come front with, like, with, with our pains and our struggles, we won't be who God made us to be. You'll remain who you think you are. You'll remain as you are. So, when you act like you've arrived, you hold yourself back from your destiny. Jesus says there's still one thing that the man needed. 
And the man was not willing to do it. He walks away. Jesus draws this illustration with the needle gate. Lowly imposture and belongings is the camel. Our second point, self-sufficiency becomes slavish dependency. Self-sufficiency becomes slavish dependency. See, a lot of times we put our hope, we put our trust in all these external things, whether it be money, whether it be family, whether it be our own selves, our careers, but what happens when all of that is stripped away? Slavish dependency, we cling to it like beggars, praying to God that it would not be removed because he's not our foundation, those things are. And if they are removed, then what's to be made of us? Self-sufficiency. This man was very self-sufficient. He didn't have worries. He didn't have issues. He could do whatever he wanted to do. This isn't an against money thing. You can be entirely broke and still believe yourself to be entirely self-sufficient. It's an attitude. It's a worldview. And Jesus deals with that. Now we're going to go to Jesus and Zacchaeus. Now this scripture we're going to read all together. This is going to be on a, well, you're not going to read with me, but you're going to read by yourself in the silence of your own mind. Luke 19, 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus Or he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was low in stature, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And we're going to pause right there. Jericho. Everybody say Jericho. Okay. You remember when we talked about the Sadducees? Jericho was a Sadducee town. Most, a lot of Sadducees built their summer homes in Jericho. Summer, winter homes is their secondary home. So this was like a vacation spot. It was a Roman-run city. So there's a lot of Roman culture going on in this place. This is a place that the Sadducees retreat to to kind of recover. Remember, they were very Hellenistic in their ways. They, they really enjoyed the Roman way of life. So Jericho is filled with these people. We need to have that in our mind as we continue on with the story. Now, we have Jericho, we have Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, chief tax collector. This is the only time in the entire Bible that chief tax collector is used for a human being that's, that's given as a title, chief tax collector. Usually there's called tax collectors. So this man was the worst of the worst. Tax collectors are bad. The chief tax collector is worse. This is, the, this is literally the bottom of the bottom to Jewish culture. And he was rich. He's low in stature. Look at the person next to you. Say, how low can you go? Now, as historians study this, the question comes up, well, if he was short, why didn't he just run to the front of the crowd? If he was just a short guy, why does he have to climb a tree? Why can't he just push through to the crowd? It's a logical question. Here's the thing. He was a tax collector. He's unclean. You're in a Sadducee town. If he touched anybody, that person became unclean. Zacchaeus can't push through a crowd because the crowd would turn on him. So what does he do? He takes himself out from society and puts himself up in a tree. The only place he can get a point of view. It's sad because 
The Sadducees were the ones who decided, they made the law that said that tax collectors were unclean. Even if you were Jewish, they said, you have to worship in the Gentile court. Don't touch us. We're too good for you. We're better than you. We're the children of Abraham. If you're Jewish and you're a tax collector, you forfeit your title as a child of Abraham. So that's what's going on in this, in this context. He climbs up the tree. Now, here's the worst part about this. The Sadducees actually had a closer connection to the Roman Empire than any of the tax collectors did. What does that mean? It means this. They were guilty of the exact same thing that they were hating on Zacchaeus for. How often in the church is this our attitude? Somebody comes to us or something like that. They say, you know, I, I had sex out of marriage. And there's this judgment, there's this condemnation that not all church people, but a lot of church people begin to throw out just like the Sadducees. But let me ask you this question. And I don't mean this to, to start exposing things about ourselves, but really we need to be real about this stuff. When was the last time you looked at anybody with lust? Even a single thought. So then who are we to then tell that person, you don't belong here? If Jesus ever ran a church, it wouldn't have been people in suits and ties. Suits and ties are beautiful. I love suits and ties. It would have been poor, homeless, broken, unclean people. And until we can strip off all the facade that is saying that we're better than that, the Spirit of God, I don't want to say He's not free to move, but He doesn't impose Himself on us. Jesus deals with the heart. He loves real. He loves honesty, not fake. We don't have to come into a place and act like we're somewhere we're not. And a lot of us are acting like we're somewhere we're not. I'm guilty of this. Even this past week, I was acting like I was somewhere I wasn't. God immediately, immediately convicted me of that. I'm broken. I'm broken. And when we can come into a place and say, there's still parts of me that the Lord is working on. Instead of, hey, look at what the Lord fixed in me. Guys, this is so awesome. I'm the best. When you act like you've arrived... You hold yourself back from what God's really wanting to do in your life. When we're not real about our struggles, we hold ourselves back from God healing those struggles. James says, confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. Bring it out in the open, which is humiliating, right? But how low can you go? In Jewish culture, there was a teaching a teaching style that the, the rabbis used is called remez. Everybody say remez. Essentially what remez was is a, a teacher would quote a verse. Rabbis, they would quote a specific verse. And people in the context of what he's saying would understand something much deeper than just the verse he said. Okay? And I just want to illustrate this. Just a simple, like, silly example. It's not silly, but it's a simple example to show you that we do this too. We just don't call it remez. So if I say, in the beginning... God created, what, what would you guys say? Heavens and the earth. If I said, 
God said, let there be light, what would you say? And there was light. See, you know your Bible, you know the story, so you're able to complete the statement in your mind. Jesus did this very often as a rabbi. He would often quote a scripture, and we as, in our culture, we just kind of read that scripture, and we're like, oh, that's cool. Not realizing he was using a style called remez that hints, and it points back to something in the Old Testament, and he's saying something so much. It's not different, but it's more profound than the surface text. And I'm going to give you an example of this in Zacchaeus. Jesus says at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, actually we're going to read that from uh, verse 5. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he was gone, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Remember Sadducee town. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and I have cheated, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We're going to break down that last line. Today's salvation has come to his house, to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, his literal name, everybody say Jesus. The name actually means God saves. That's, that's the definition of his name, God saves. So he says in this statement, today salvation has come. So he's saying Jesus is in the house. That's what he tells, that's what he's announcing to all the Sadducees. He says salvation has come to this house today. Jesus, I'm here, is what he's saying. Then he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. This is huge. His audience is a Sadducee-infested crowd. Tax collectors aren't sons of Abraham. What are you talking about, Jesus? They forfeited that. They don't love God. And Jesus' statement is, for this man too, also, in addition to all of you people, is a son of Abraham. He removes the shame that society put on this man. In a moment, in a word. He removes it all. The people are drawn back for sure. And then he makes this remez. He says this, he says, The son of man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We could read our Bibles and we can say, man, Jesus, that was a good line. That was so good. And we could think he like made it up on the spot right here. The fact is Jesus didn't make that line up. He's drawing something out of the book of Ezekiel. And he's piecing two pieces together from a single chapter, Ezekiel chapter 34. And when you figure this out, this is huge because the statement he's making is so much bigger than what we would ever discover on our own, what we would ever discover just from the surface of the text. This is the kind of statement, and right now you want to understand it, this is the kind of statement that all disciples, all of Jesus' disciples are going to be there like, oh, burn. Did you hear what he just said? Peter was like high-fiving Andrew. Somebody else was chest bumping in the background like, take that, Sadducees. And then if we were there, we'd be like, what the heck is going on, man? Like, what, what did he say? Here's what he says. I'm going to paraphrase for you, Ezekiel 34. And I encourage you to take note of that chapter. And you can go back and read it by yourself. 
and see what Jesus is saying. Because I'm just going to paraphrase it. He basically says this, and this is interesting. I was reading through the book of Ezekiel recently, and God often refers to Ezekiel as son of man. He often refers to Ezekiel as son of man. This was the most popular title that Jesus ever used for himself, son of man. And so he quotes this. This is a paraphrase of Ezekiel. It says, son of man. God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the Sadducees. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Woe to you shepherds who only take care of yourselves. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. You trample the grass of the pasture so that my sheep cannot eat. You muddy, your, your, you muddy the water with your feet so that my, my sheep cannot drink. You leave my sheep unattended on the hills to be eaten by the wolves. I, oh my gosh, listen to this. This is God speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. This is what Jesus in the background is saying to the Sadducees. This is why everybody's like, oh my gosh, did you just hear what he said? God says this, I am against you, shepherds. And I will hold you accountable for my flock. I will remove you shepherds. And you will no longer be able to feed yourselves by using my flock as your food. I, Yahweh, I myself will seek and save the lost. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And we see Jesus as this like very soft, gentle person in that moment. Like, oh, that was so awesome. So much love in that sentence. I love it. And everybody in his culture, everybody in that day is like, what? The crowd would not have been still. Because God, Jesus, Jesus just said, I'm God, number one. I am the shepherd. Ezekiel says, I, God, will be their shepherd. Jesus is now saying, I am now that shepherd. I've come to seek and save the lost. And with a backhanded slap, he's saying, and you, oh, religious people, you, oh, so highly exalted, you have not even stepped down to heal the broken or the lost. What have you done? You have used them as your food. You've made religion a game so that you can be the best at it. You've built yourself up so that everybody else can bow down to you. And he says, and I will break you. I am against you. God, this is one of the harshest statements God ever speaks against a, a set of human beings. Those that acted like they had arrived. The facade of religion. What's interesting, it's not very many years from this point that the entire Jewish system of worship is brought to the ground. It's not too long after this that the very temple where they had the best seats, not very long after this statement, that it was all brought crumbling down on them.
Self-righteousness, this is our third point. Self-righteousness is spiritual suicide. Self-righteousness is spiritual suicide. He's speaking to the Sadducees. But the word of God is living and active and alive today. So let me ask you this question. Where do you find yourself? What group are you in? The word of God says that every believer is as a priest in the kingdom of heaven. Called to reach out and mend the broken. Find the lost. Bring them home. And nurture them. Not to use them for our needs. Not to use them for our benefit. And more importantly, not to treat them like they don't belong in this place. Jesus makes a very profound statement. He says, Zacchaeus, you unclean. The name Zacchaeus means pure. He calls him Zacchaeus. That's how you would say it in the Hebrew. Zacchaeus, come down. Come down from there. He doesn't even say, can I come to your house? He says, I have to go to your house. You can't even tell me no. And what he's saying in that moment is, I love you. You are one of the sheep. And every label, every title, every sense of slander, every sense of shame or guilt or condemnation that has ever told you otherwise, I speak against that now. You are loved. You are called. Is that you in this place? Have you been rejected? Have you been pushed out? Has somebody ever made you feel like you don't deserve God? God would say to that person, it's better for that person to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. And to you, oh lowly one, he would say, I love you. Come home. I'll be your shepherd now. I'm the good shepherd now. The second point isn't nearly as pretty for us. Have we been guilty of looking down our noses on people? Well, that person slept with this many people. That person doesn't even have the right sexual orientation. But they've abused drugs all their life. Have we been guilty of looking at those people as second class citizens? Or worse? If so, that needs to change. My closing point Jesus says to his people, to the, to the audience, he says, the gate to heaven is narrow. It's narrow. God gave me a revelation at youth camp this year. It was incredible and it has shaped so much of who I am and what I do now and how I think and it's it's beautiful. When we hear the word narrow, we think what? Thin, skinny. So Jesus essentially was saying, all you big people, you ain't cutting it. 
That's not what Jesus was saying. Narrow does not just mean this way. It means this way. It's low. And just like a camel through the eye of a needle, you can only enter in on your knees without any baggage on yourself, stripping everything off, saying, God, I am yours. Take me and bring me home. Bring me in. Camels couldn't crawl through on their own. They had to be pushed or pulled through. You can't win your salvation. Grace pulls you in. But not until humility brings us to Jesus can Jesus bring us to heaven. Oh, lowly ones. This is our call. This is our commission. Do not think too highly of yourself. But live with humility, considering others as higher than you. This is the perfect position to wash someone's feet. Jesus didn't reign with domineering, boss-like attitude. He led by servant-hearted example. A life on his knees. This is our call. This is who we are. This is the kingdom of God.